Welcome back to Canucks Hour here. The NHL trade deadline has officially passed. As you know, though, of course, plenty of action can still happen in the uh, the minutes and even the hour to follow the official NHL trade deadline. It's Canucks Hour, special trade deadline edition. I'm Jamie Dodd. Canucks insider Thomas Drance is here with me. Satyar Shah is in the house as well. Before we get to Drancer and Shaw, uh, we have a trade to announce. The Canucks have indeed traded their most obvious trade candidate, Tyler Mott, going to the New York Rangers for a 2023 fourth round pick. That's uh, courtesy of Frank hey, Cervelli. So let Dr- me jump, Drancer, let me go jump ahead. in here. Canucks are done for the day following the Mott trade. All right, so there it is. Canucks deadline day is in the books. Tyler Mott to the Rangers for the fourth round pick. Of course, we also saw the Hamannick and Dermott deals yesterday. We saw them pick up Brad Richardson as well. But the actual trade deadline for the Canucks, only Yannick or sorry, not Yannick Hansen. We're not trading him. Tyler Mott to the Rangers uh, for a fourth round pick. Drancer, I'll start with you. Your reaction to the Mott deal coming in at the 11th hour here. I, I see an outpouring of disappointment on social media. Tyler Mott, I know, was more than a fourth liner for this team, right? He regularly played third line minutes, scored a pretty good clip, and he was a key part of a, you know, Canucks third line, frankly, with Yuho Lamico and Matthew Highmore that played so well over the course of the past three months. But when you look at market prices for fourth line players, you know, you're talking about Mason Appleton going for a fourth round player. Or for a fourth round pick, guy makes 900k, only a season removed from being like a 35 point guy, and is an RFA after this year. Uh, Johan Larson went for a fit for a third, but the Arizona Coyotes retained 50 percent, and he can play center. Like this is the market price for those players. This is the move. I know it's not pretty. I know it's not sexy. I know it's not a steal price for new management, but they have ended the trend of this organization bleeding value and unrestricted free agency, they have made a hard deal. Not not one that's going to win headlines. It's not going to win them the press conference when Patrick Alvin meets with the media shortly. But who cares? This was the right call for this team. It was necessary. It was essential, particularly if they couldn't come to terms on a team-friendly extension. Kudos. You know, honestly, kudos. I think when you look through this deadline, right, I would have loved to see the Canucks be a little more proactive in terms of shedding salary. I think there's an open question as to whether or not the team's success particularly sort of maybe slowed down the gears a little bit, especially over the last two weeks. If you're going to criticize that, for me, that's fair. But moving out Hamannick, creating $1.5 million in cap space while netting Travis Dermott and then monetizing Tyler Mott for a fourth-round pick, that's like a solid effort, you know, for a conservative deadline, which is how they've approached it, I think they did what was absolutely necessary. Uh, it's too bad they couldn't move Yaroslav Halak. I know they would have loved to. Um, but nonetheless, as I look through the body of work, I, I think you at least have to say that they come away with a passing grade. And, and Sat, we'll get your take in just a second here. But coming into the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line, you know, people not happy initially with the Tyler Mott deal. That's a horrible trade. Should have just kept Mott. Mott for a fourth round, brutal. Even Benning could have done better. Mott for a fourth is pathetic. That's the instant reaction from the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. But Sat, I mean, we've also heard repeatedly from fans the fear that they wouldn't get anything for Mott at the deadline, that they'd keep him without an extension in hand. Now they do make the deal and they get at least a mid-round pick for him and all of a sudden it's oh that's all they could get for him but 
to to make the comparison to the Jim Benning era, this is kind of the exact opposite of what we so often saw from Jim Benning when pending UFAs would stay rather than be moved for a mid round pick at the deadline. I, I think it was very obvious all around, all along that. The, the Canucks weren't going to lose Tyler Mott for nothing, right? And if he was going to sign, like Drance mentioned, it was going to be a super team-friendly number. And like, like we don't know how deep those contract talks went today, if at all, if they really ex- went deep with the Mott and and the Vancouver Canucks. But I wouldn't be surprised that if the Canucks put an offer on the table, it was maybe a marginal raise on what he's making now in a two- or three-year deal. Like I don't think they would have gotten into the $2 million number because I never thought it made sense for this team to pay him over $2 million and then try to still figure out your cap situation long-term, right? It never made sense for them to hold on to them and not move them. And one thing we kept hearing, and I was kind of skeptical of this, but clearly now the market tells you, that the trade market or the league did not view Tyler Mott the same way Vancouver viewed him. A lot of people have made the case that Mott is more valuable to the Canucks and this organization and how they view him as opposed to how the league as a whole views Tyler Mott. And despite the fact other teams were interested in him, you see that he goes for a fourth-round pick, that maybe there was never a higher draft pick on the table. And I do think this team has been open as far as trade conversations go. But the reality here is we're all surprised that we're able to move Hamannick, right? That they were able to move that three million. I mean, who else on this on this deal on this team that is bad money is movable? Dickinson's not easy to move. Pullman is injured. That's not an easy contract to move. I think the only thing you can kind of criticize them for potentially is did they maybe pass on something for Luke Shen? Like, is is that maybe something they passed on, or do they value him more on this team next season at eight hundred and fifty k? Yeah, but he, and, yeah. Sorry, Drance. I was going to say, with even Luke, with Luke Shen, he's he's not a pending UFA, right? So there's still theoretically time to get something for that asset down the road. Particularly, like, you know, if you'd told me that the Canucks were going to get a third for a right-handed defenseman, I would have assumed that was Luke Shen. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, the fact that they sent out Hamannick for a guy who costs half the half the amount, is better, is younger, and is faster, and, and sort of fits a different template, right? I mean, Hamannick, Shen, Pullman, that's the same player. It's the same player three times over, right? With, like, slightly different skill sets in one way or the other. But, I mean, basically the same player type. You know, to monetize one of them, get off that money, get a different type of player, a guy who brings a different dimension to your blue line, can move the puck, can skate. I think he's going to stand out like crazy the moment he hits the ice. People are going to be like, oh, right, wow, how nice is it to watch defenders other than Quinn Hughes, um, you know, be able to skate and move zones with their feet. Um, you know, I think that's good work. Uh, I don't I don't, I don't, have a problem with holding on to Shen. I think it makes a, an abundance of sense, particularly because you're always going to be able to move a good player and a good person making that amount. You know, like that's we not have a move trade that to, to happen announce. today. Do we? Not a Canucks trade, though, right, Faber? Okay. Yeah, no. So it's uh, coming in after the deadline, though, one of the premier UFAs that was still don't, out there. Don't scare me like that, no, guys. No, 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 don't worry. <laughs> uh, Ricard Raquel headed to the Pittsburgh Penguins for a prospect and a second-round pick. That's from uh, Chris Johnston, NHL insider. So some moves still continuing to come in, and we will turn our attention to the NHL-wide stuff at some point here. But uh, continuing to look at the, the Canucks deadline and again the Tyler Mott deal is the only one that goes down but as you were saying Drancer there's still lots of opportunities for them to make big changes to this roster uh, beyond just what we've seen at this deadline which you know we're, we're, we're hearing the word underwhelming come in in the uh, text message inbox and I understand <laughs> that but with Shen with so many of the other players that were mentioned in trade rumors they're still under team control going into the summer here yeah look I would have loved to see the Canucks do something more aggressive before the deadline, but I think that with what they did, 
you know, the fact is, is that there was two situations that needed a resolution today. And what we now know is that the Canucks are going to have 1.25 million uh, performance bonus overage from Yaroslav Halak on their books following the season. So for the 2022-23 season, add Yaroslav Halak's $1.25 million bonus overage. It could be an additional 250k onto the Braden Holtby and the Jake Vertanen buyout sort of penalties. And that's going to restrict their movement to some extent. You would have loved to see them move that. They would have loved to move it. It was always going to be super complicated to do. Always. Always. It would have been a great escape. You know, it's one of those things where it's like when you, when Houdini gets you know, put in a box in a straight jacket at the bottom of a river. Like you're, you're, you applaud him when he gets out, but if he doesn't, you're not blaming him, blaming him for it. The odds were stacked against him. Um, that, that's sort of the situation that the Canucks were in on the Halak front. I'm not dinging them for that. It would have been a, a tremendous effort to get out of that. Mott needed to be monetized if the deal couldn't be done. Like for me, the, for me, the thing that needed to happen was Mott needed to go for value, which the Canucks have netted or, he needed to be extended to a team-friendly extension. One of those two were outcomes you could live with. Keeping him, for me, would have been far worse than this return. Like, this is baseline exactly what this team needed to do, and I applaud them for it. Honestly, I think it was... I know that, I know it's getting panned in a massive way in this marketplace, but it looks consistent to me with the market price for players of this type for bottom six forwards they, they were all seemingly going for these mid-round picks Mott's in that milieu good luck to him in New York you know I also think one thing to note is this is probably the best case scenario for Tyler Mott right I mean mm-hmm. it, this is a really crucial contract for him getting a chance to go play for a playoff team have an impact he's going to help a really good special teams team uh, play even better like I think this is something they absolutely had to do they got it right well, I'm with you. Like the Canucks did what they had to do at the deadline here, but what's to come in the off season, I think, is where the real work is going to happen, right? I mean, the fact they were able to get out from Hammonick's contract at the deadline, I think, is a huge positive. Like it has been outlined, and getting something from Mod and not losing that for nothing. But I think this still sets the table here for the off season, and I wonder how much of the legwork was done in the trade talks around their guys like Garland and around Besser is going to be revisited come the draft. And one thing that's kind of hanging over all of this too is, as much as the team, yes is going to explore what it takes to keep JT Miller, and there will be conversations. But when you know that at the draft, you can still move JT and get a big haul in return, you're still holding firm on your prices for guys like Besser and Garland. Because the last thing you want to do is, let's say you move Garland at the deadline, don't get a great return, and then you can't sign JT. And then you're like, okay, well, now we're trading JT too. Now, you can make the argument that you trade everybody, but from a team perspective, I can see how... If they know you're getting a bigger haul for JT no matter what, if they can't sign him, it makes it a bit easier knowing that, okay, you have that big ticket to play. And I think that is part of the factor that goes into, well, they didn't move Besser or Garland. Because I think the main reason for it is the offers really weren't good enough. And even if you're willing to take an okay offer, why do that now when you don't know what's happening with JT yet? Was there anything from either of your perspectives, Sat or Drance, that was maybe close to happening but didn't come to fruition at this deadline? And maybe as you said, Sat, I mean, we see this from time to time, right, where the the legwork for a deal is set, the foundation is set maybe at the deadline, uh, but it ends up coming to fruition later on in the summer. Was there anything that you think maybe got close for the Canucks else to do at this trade deadline? 
Uh, my understanding last night was there may have been something, and I wonder if it was with a player that had a bigger ticket, and that's why this morning there were some suggestions that, okay, maybe they do end up moving Garland or not. I wonder if there were some conversations that happened yesterday that were maybe a bit closer, but it was pretty quiet today. I know, Dance, you mentioned this too. I think all the things that were projected were based on kind of the conversations that were really heating up over the course of the weekend, not as much this morning. I think a lot of stuff kind of died down when it couldn't be consummated yesterday. I, I sort of got a sense as the day went along, too, and, and I brought it up in real time because I got multiple messages to that effect. But some of those, like some of those rebuilding teams, like not rebuilding teams, but teams that aren't traditional buyers that had been in on Garland, I think that, that cooled down two, three hours before the deadline or, or sorry, while, while I was on air. So an hour and a half ago, I, I got the sense that 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 sort of had really cooled down. So. You know, I suspect that a deal just couldn't happen, right? Like, I suspect that whether or not the Canucks were able to clear enough space to make it worth their while, or were they able to both include an inefficient contract and get the type of return they wanted, clearly they just didn't get their... Like, this team for months has been talked about as having astronomical asks for some of these players, right? I mean, that's sort of been the watchword around the industry. I don't know if you've been hearing the same thing, Sat, but that's Mm -hmm. what I've been hearing from my league contacts. And that reflected, I think, their bargaining position and their judgment that the price on Miller doesn't decline, that, you know, the price on Garland doesn't decline at the draft, that, you know, they had time on on Brock Besser. Um, You know, presumably the same thing goes for Luke Shen. You know, I think there was a world where a Shen deal might have happened, but I I just think it always had to be an overpay. Mm -hmm. And teams don't typically overpay for players like like Shen. And so, you know, I think we've learned a lot at the end of the day about this management group's approach, right? They do want to carve out cap space. They said they would, and they did. I mean, this team now has 1.5 million in shed commitments for next season, and they didn't do a deal with uh, Tyler Mott that would have occupied more, right? So they were very careful about their their cap space. We also know that they did try to trade Halak. Um, It didn't work out, but we know that they tried. So we've seen that play out. We know that this team wants young players more than they want draft picks, right? Like, we do know that. Although they traded Tyler Mott for a fourth-round pick, the fact that they immediately monetized the third they got for Hamannick uh, speaks volumes, right, about what this team wants. Young players age 20 to 25, that's their the backbone of their strategy to get quickly, get, sorry, get better in an expedited fashion. Um, so, you know, I, I do think we've learned a lot. And then, and then here's the biggest one. When this management group has time, they're going to use it, right? With Tyler Mott, they clearly waited till the deadline, right? Waited till the 11th hour. And ultimately, you know, with, with all of the information in front of them, made, made a determination to take the best offer they could get. That was a fourth round pick in 2023. Right. And um, one thing I will say, Drance, like I, I see the, the notion of people saying that they waited too long to trade Tyler Mott. I, I don't get the sense that they passed on a better offer earlier just to hold no. on to him. I, I, I don't buy that at all. Like this notion that Vancouver didn't talk trade just until like this weekend, they've been engaged in trade talks for months. So I, I don't, I'm not saying you're saying this, but I see the notion out there that, oh, they waited too long to move guys. I don't really get the sense on guys like Mott. I think those talks have been in engagement for quite a while. It's just a matter of valuation. I just got a text from a league contact, um, and it was it was a sardonic text, but I, I got to share it with you. He just said, that's the best deadline Vancouver has had in years. And he's not wrong. Yeah. I mean, he's not wrong. You, you, 
I'm I'm still gobsmacked. I still am picking up my jaw off the floor that they were able to get out of the Hamannick deal without taking money back, Sat. And, you know, the the Dermot, I like I don't even love Dermot that much. I don't think he's a needle moving acquisition, but he at least brings something this team needs so desperately, right? The ability to play the left or the right side, the ability to transition zones with his feet. Literally, there's only one other player on this roster who can do that from the back end. Now they have two. That's huge. I I think the impact that we're going to see from Travis Dermott is going to blow people away from the moment he hits the ice with this team just because they've had no one capable of playing the game that way. Uh, and then and then they monetized Tyler Mott. They broke the chain. For me, that's the most important thing. This organization has just bled. And this, this goes back beyond Edler. It goes back beyond Toffoli and Tanev and Markstrom. Like, we're talking about dating back all the way to, like, Jovanovski, Sallow, Oland. Um, this team has bled value for years in unrestricted free agency. It cannot keep happening. It can't. It, it, that kills you, particularly when you're not, you know, keeping the guy because you have a chance at the cup, right? It's one thing to lose Erhoff. It's another thing to, but but you kept him because you went to the Stanley Cup final game seven. Uh, it's another thing to lose, you know, Edler uh, after years of will he wave speculation, right? I mean, it's a totally different thing. This club, the new management broke that chain. I don't think you can understate how vital that is for the long-term health of this organization. Yeah, and just when you think you have the NHL uh, figured out, Travis Hamanick gets more in return than Tyler Mott at the trade <laughs> deadline, which I don't think anyone would have predicted yeah. uh, a couple of days ago, but that's how it would turn out for the Canucks. Okay, so uh, we talked about this earlier in the show, Drance. Sad, I know you and Riccio on Canucks Central have talked about this too. Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine have been very, very open and clear about what they want to accomplish with this roster, right? And it's getting younger, getting faster, acquiring picks and prospects, and most importantly, at least in my mind, clearing cap space and creating extra cap flexibility going into the summer. So they do a little bit of that, you know, to a minor degree with the Mott trades, with the Hamannick and and Dermott acquisitions or, or moves as well. But now the attention will turn, okay, how can they accomplish those goals going into the summer. And when you talk about cap space, we all know Miller, Besser, Garland, those are going to be names to watch. But I do wonder, are there players farther down the roster that now that we're out of the deadline and we're going in and looking at the draft, looking at the summer, are there any of the next tier of players, your Pearsons, your Myers, your Dickinsons even, that become guys to watch, potentially easier to deal now that we're past the deadline and teams might have a little bit more flexibility in the summer? So I do think come this off season for Vancouver specifically, there will be a lot of movement, right? Like I really do. And I look at a guy like Tanner Pearson, who was kind of mentioned here at the trade deadline. But I think even though he may have been open to a certain fit, because he has a full no move clause and would be very much in control, it makes it harder for that to kind of happen. How he finishes the season, I think, does open things up. And one guy... You know, Pearson, I find interesting because, Grants, as much as the contract we look at and say 3.25 is not great, but because of the way he's played under Boudreaux, I think there might be a team that could be interested in making some sort of a deal there. And maybe it's not so much a valuation, but could be more something along the lines you saw with Hammond. You're not getting a huge return, but you might be able to clear a lot of that money. Pearson has a lot of, like, weight yes. in this game, mm-hmm. right? There, there's weight He's won cups. He plays a style of game that's tough to find. I don't think he's viewed as a top six, like, heavy press, which is one of the most valuable items in right. hockey. But I do think he's he's valued as a middle six, heavy press. 
And, you know, considering his game's not super reliant on speed, considering how he's held up, considering his reputation for being zero maintenance, always fit, right? Like, he's got he's got a lot of those things that help teams overlook, for example, aging curves and, and, and other sort of warning signs on a guy his age with the term that he has left remaining. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked at all if Tanner Pearson... Should the Canucks decide to move on from him, ended up having real hockey value, um, you know, in a deal, particularly because he's performed so well and been, you know, a presence that seems to improve, right? The circumstances under which his centerman sled, right? I mean, JT Miller's played his best hockey beside him. That matters to teams, right? But Horvat's played his best hockey beside him. That's, you know, a crucial data point. This is a guy who clearly helps a, a guy who can drive a line do that job, and there's enormous value in that. We'll see where Pearson goes, but I, I sort of got the sense early today that, you know, the my, my sense of it earlier today anyway was that the chatter around Pearson was perhaps louder in public than mm-hmm. it was in the halls of power above Griffith's way. Like, I, I don't know that that was a, that was a, a close, like a, an item that got close at any point in this process. Well, I think the closest one probably was Connor Garland. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. if it was really close enough for it to happen. To me, Pearson's the interesting one to keep an eye on and because I think it doesn't really hinge on anybody else on the roster, whereas Besser, Garland, Miller, Horvath, all those guys hinge on one another, right? I mean, they all kind of depend on what you're doing with those other players. And ultimately, I don't think they they got the valuation on Garland, but maybe if they did, it would have been willing to move him. So I think what this process has told us about Connor Garland, as far as how this organization views him and how expendable he might be, I think it's probably been the most telling out of the core players. The other thing with Tanner Pearson, I'll just say, is I, I think you mentioned it a little bit, Drance. He's somebody that obviously, if you're a contender, you want in your bottom six, but he's also shown he can complement high-end players. Like, we've seen how well he's worked with JT Miller, right? So he's the kind of guy that, yeah, you start with him in your bottom six, but as the deal or as the season moves on, if you ever have a, a reason or an injury that you need to move, move him up the lineup to plug a hole, you have a pretty good degree of confidence that he can handle playing with higher-end players. And I, I do wonder, just as you said, he checks so many boxes for things that we know NHL teams value. I mean, look at Travis Hamanick getting a third-round pick, right? Because he has that reputation as a veteran, heavy player, and Tanner Pearson uh, would have even more interest, I think, than Travis Hamanick, certainly, around the NHL. So I definitely think that that is one to watch going forward here. Uh, with Yarrow Halak, that was the other name we were keeping an eye on. Is this just a situation of the goalie market is so difficult and his recent performance just made it so that there wasn't really uh, any sort of market for his services, especially considering the bonus overage that teams would have to pay out to have, to take his deal? Yeah, I mean, I think the bonus overage is the big issue here uh, for Thatcher, for uh, Yarrow Halak in, in so many different ways. I mean, if, if he was making just 1.5, I don't think you have a much of an issue moving him potentially, even if you maybe even retain 500K and make it a million and maybe a goalie starved team makes that deal for you, right? I think that entire penalty does make it a lot harder. And I think the fact that he played so poorly really hurt his value overall as well, right? And when you look around the National Hockey League, and Kevin Woodley's outlined this too, when goalies get traded at the deadline, oftentimes it doesn't work out. And it's very seldom you see a goalie get traded at the deadline and he is 
a guy that helps you out. Robin Leonard, case in point with the Vegas Golden Knights a couple of years ago, that worked out. Uh, but in, uh, there are a number of other situations where that hasn't happened. And when you look at Halak's game, where he wasn't great last year, he struggled so far this year, has a cap overage, it became pretty clear that it was going to be really difficult to move him. Um, now, does that preclude them from finding a way to move off that money as the season goes on? I mean, potentially there are ways you could do it. I mean, to a team that's not a playoff team, for instance. But I can't envision a way where you move Halak's, you know, contract now without giving something up in order to do that, right? Like, what incentive does a non-playoff team have to take on Halak unless you give them a reason to do so? Yeah, unless it's attached to right. a player like Connor Garland. Well, and that and that's the one thing to note too with with Mott. I mean. Do you get a better return if you take back salary from one of the contenders, right? Like, is there was there a world where you could have gotten more if you'd taken Kyle Turris, right? Or, or something like that. If you'd added money to your books for this season, maybe even next, could you have gotten a second or something like that? And is that worth doing considering the dire cap straits that this team is in? Probably not, right? So you have to also weigh all those factors. We, we don't know exactly what, what the Canucks had on the table that they were deciding between, but you know one, one, way, to, one way to juke your return is to take John Moore back. Uh, that's the type of move this organization typically hasn't made. Uh, maybe you would have liked to see it here, but considering how handcuffed they are this offseason, I, I don't think you can blame them for making the simplest version of a hockey deal, even if the return's just a fourth. Uh, as a reminder, we expect Canucks general manager Patrick Alvin to speak to the media in just about an hour at 1.30. Of course, you'll hear that live here on Sportsnet 650. We're also hoping to have an exclusive interview with Patrick Alvin later uh, with Sat and Dan Riccio on Canucks Central. Lots more trade deadline reaction coming up. 6.50, 6.50, get your thoughts into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, and as a reminder, tra- NHL trade deadline coverage brought to you by Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Do your feet hurt? Talk to a fitting expert today at 11 lower mainland locations or online at kintec.net. More trade deadline cover- coming up on the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Final segment of a supersized NHL trade deadline edition here on Canucks Hour. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance here with you for another half hour and continue to be joined by special guests. You hear them on Canucks Central. You hear them on our Canucks game broadcasts, of course, as well. You see them on TV. Our very own Satyar Shah is here. Uh, Just to get you caught up, one trade in the books for the Canucks today. They send forward Tyler Mott, of course, a pending UFA, to the New York Rangers for a fourth-round pick in 2023. Of course, yesterday they made the deal sending out Travis Hamanick and bringing in Travis Dermott. Uh, they also claimed Brad Richardson, former Canuck, back for a second go-round with the team on waivers from the Calgary Flames earlier today. Now, one of the names that we've heard in the rumor mail, and certainly, I mean, that's not unique to uh, the new Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin front office. His name has been out there a lot in the past before, is Brock Besser. Obviously, he stays put, and we understand that the qualifying offer situation with Brock Besser is something that has suppressed his value. Now, we've had lots of questions coming in uh, to the 650-650 Dunbar-Lumber text line, uh, making a comparison, one, between what the Bruins did with Jake DeBrusque, signing him to a deal before the deadline, although he ultimately stays in Boston. Uh, We also saw Jesperi Kakaniemi, who is an RFA with an interesting qualifying offer, sign a long-term deal today in Carolina that had been rumored in recent weeks to be coming down. Where do we go from here with Brock Besser 
his trade status, and also his contract status. I mean, do you guys get the sense that there has been much negotiation between the Canucks and Brock Besser? And is this a scenario where we could see some sort of mid- or long-term deal worked out, but that wouldn't necessarily preclude Besser being part of a trade down the road as well? Sad, I'll let you go. Yeah, I mean, I think for a guy like Besser in the offseason, I think the contract talk there, uh, Jamie, is going to be the big determining factor. And again, I think the biggest thing that kind of holds up any Besser decision comes down to JT Miller ultimately. If you know what the number is for JT Miller or you have a sense of what it takes to keep him, well, then it becomes very clear what you have to do with Brock Besser, for instance, right? And as much as this team is looking to maybe make a couple of significant moves, I'm not sure that they're at a point where they want to trade two or three of their core forwards, right? So if we're looking at Miller, Horvat, Besser, and Garland, maybe one or two go, but I'm not sure any more than that goes, right? So Besser does hinge on JT Miller in so many different ways. Because let's say that you look at Besser and say, okay, maybe we roll the dice and say, we do a shorter term deal, three or four years potentially, and the number is closer to six million, not to seven and a half. That might be too rich for you if you sign JT Miller to a contract worth eight million per season or just below or whatever the number may or may not be. But if you don't, maybe you're more inclined to look at Besser and say, we'll roll the dice and see what he can give us, right? And we're, we're okay bypassing whatever return that is because that's the higher value here for us. So, so for me, Besser comes down there more than anything else because how do you keep Besser even at six if you're paying JT Miller? It's a really good point. There's an interconnectedness to the Garland, Besser, and Miller talk. Uh, for sure. And and with Besser, I think the only thing that would surprise me at this juncture, to be totally honest, gentlemen, is if the Canucks didn't qualify. Yeah. Right? I, I wouldn't be surprised if they elected arbitration. I wouldn't be surprised if they did a short-term deal. I wouldn't be surprised if they did a long-term deal. I wouldn't be surprised if he was traded. The only thing that would surprise me is if the Canucks did not protect their rights by qualifying him, even though, you know, you'd have to swallow hard, right? <laughs> even though it's not something anyone wants to do. So... Uh, the Besser situation, they have time on. And, and you know, I think this comes back to everything else, right? Like, one line of criticism that's probably going to be levied against this organization from outside of Vancouver, but not from within Vancouver itself, is that they didn't trade Miller at a point when his value was highest, right? But, like, I don't see that as a piece they had to divest themselves of if they didn't get the price they wanted. I think that's the same for Garland, and I think that's the same for Besser, and I think that's a big explanation for why the Canucks held tight. I think they had big asks, and teams ultimately weren't willing to meet them, and there was no rush to do them. The the one deal that they compromised on was the deal that had to get done, right? And so I, I do think we'll see things play out with Besser in the summer where there is real pressure points for the organization. The qualifying offer deadline is going to be a pressure point. The... Uh, deadline to file for team elected arbitration is going to be a pressure point. You'll get another pressure point um, when the market opens and and Besser's free to sign uh, as an RFA. You'll get another one at his arbitration um, hearing should he file for player elected. So, you know, for me, I just see this as, again, I I don't want to use a word like punt, but I see this as the team understanding where the decisions had to be made and where they didn't, and they were happy to hold onto some of these assets and sort of figure it out um, beyond this season. I think that was always a pretty, like, we always knew that this was a likely outcome, right, Sat? But but it feels surprising considering yeah. how much the Canucks drove 
sort of trade rumor chatter over the course of the past few weeks. Well, and you know what? As much as, you know, there's talk out there of media making up rumors or whatever, but, I mean, the Canucks were active in trade talks, and why wouldn't they be? And, and Drancer, you know this having worked in a National Hockey League organization. How do you know what your players are worth? By checking the value around the league, and especially when you come in as a new management team trying to figure all that stuff out. But I do believe that they, if they could have found a deal here to take advantage of the deadline, they would have. Because, Drancer especially with how the league is shifting. You saw how many kind of future deals were done. You know, Senators made that with Travis Hamannick, despite not being a playoff team and everything. This was an opportunity to do something. I think the Canucks saw that opportunity. So I don't think they viewed viewed it as a failure, but to some degree, there could be some disappointment that they weren't able to take advantage of a window to make something happen. I think those are two different things. And and I do, and Sat, both of you have been on this point that, look, expect big moves to happen, but more likely in the summer than at this deadline. Now, I do think from a fan's perspective, we're seeing a lot of frustration come in to 650-650 in the Dunbar-Lumber text line, right? This one, Nelson and Kelowna. Frustrating about asset management. You can still see this ownership thinks we have a chance, uh, but that's gone. Uh, another one, ownership is still in the driver's seat. Dithering by management led to us having a directionless deadline. Jealous of Anaheim, Montreal, Seattle. Another one, epic fail. A third for Dermot and only a fourth for Mott. Not a good start for Canucks management. I do think uh, we can have the debate about how much the team's recent form and what they did over the last three games affected how the team saw what they should do at the deadline but I do think coming off the frustration of those last two games in particular and even the other one against Detroit there was an appetite from the fan base to see significant moves at this deadline but I don't agree at all that this is a directionless deadline and the texture brings up the point oh Anaheim Montreal and Seattle the players those teams were moving by and large were UFAs those were classic sell at the deadline or you will lose them for nothing situations for those teams the Canucks just were not in that situation with the exception of Tyler Mott who guess what they moved instead of letting him walk or signing him to a deal that didn't make a sense for their cap situation so I understand you know when you see how they showed up for the game against Calgary when you see how they show up for the game against Buffalo, there's this frustration and there's this kind of bloodlust. Okay, make some moves. Make some big news right now. But this, to me, is not at all a sign of, oh, hey, they decided not to trade Connor Garland because they're still trying to push for that playoff revenue. They can make all of these decisions farther down the road. And in particular, the comparisons to Jim Benning and his front office and how they would have handled the deadline, I don't think they would have made the Tyler Mott move for a fourth-round pick in 2023. I think that is absolutely something different than what we've seen in the past, and it's the right move. It's absolutely the right move. So that comparison in particular, I don't really understand. Well, I also don't know that we ever saw them shed salary. I mean, I suppose Schmidt, I mean, if you're trading Schmidt for a third and then getting Hamannick for a third, right? I mean... The fact is, is that the Hamannick piece of business is is more favorable to the team, right? So, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't see the, I, I I don't see the through line there. I do wonder, and I don't know this. I want to be careful to not be reporting this, but it is a thing I wonder, particularly because the conversation around players on this team and their their perceived availability within the industry did shift two weeks ago, sat, and mm-hmm. did shift back on Sunday morning. I do wonder if, to some extent the club's performance complicated things to the point where, you know, not that the club lost their nerve on behaving more like a seller, but that the club did at least, you know, and not at the 11th hour, but maybe at the sixth hour, um, sort of decide that maybe they wanted to see a little more before, before sort of pulling the trigger on some big ticket items. And I do wonder if that did cause perhaps a little bit less action than we, than we may maybe thought we would see. 
I mean, it's a fair question to ask, right? And if you, if you are going to point out anything, I think that's the one. It's that, did you take a pause at any point, say over the past couple of weeks, that may have missed some sort of a window? And it's hard to get that answer right now. And Patrick Alvin's going to meet with the media, and we'll have him on, and we'll start you know, getting some questions. We'll try to get some answers as to what their game plan was here or everything like that. But, you know, as far as what you mentioned about a lot of these decisions, too, for guys that have term on their contract... I wonder, too, how the v- league views a guy like Brock Besser. And we heard a lot about the qualifying offer. To part of me, Drancer, like, I, I do agree the qualifying offer does cause a bit of a concern. But I think if you really have a will to want the player, there's a way to figure that out. And I think based on everything we've heard between the Canucks and Besser, that there probably is a middle ground they can reach if they talk contract that's not going to be seven and a half. Does it kind of just say beyond the contract that the market on Brock Besser, generally speaking around the league, is a lot softer than people want to believe? Well, I mean, there's no question for me that the qualifying offer restrains his value to to a to an extent you wouldn't believe. And I mean, I think you see proof positive in that with the DeBrusque extension that we saw today, right? I mean, that deal was done with the, you know, implicit intent of adding certainty into the equation for DeBrusque. And that's only a $4.4 million qualifying offer. Besser's is $3 million north of that, right? So, I mean, you're seeing it play out in real time. Like, there's the, you know, the case study you need to understand this concept. Teams don't want to deal with that uncertainty. $7.5 million is what 36 forwards in the NHL make, right? It is elite-level cap hit. Um, no one, no one wants to swallow and navigate that situation. And yeah, I mean, it's a, like Besser's a really good player, but unfortunately because of the structure of his deal, he's kind of on a problem contract already at this stage of his career. And and that does complicate things. I want to talk about one other thing really quickly regarding market value. I'm beginning to get a sense as we've been on the air and as I've been working my phone, I'm beginning to guess. I don't think the Canucks and Tyler Mott's camp really got all that close. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Ultimately, at the end of the day, and so you know, the Mott market at, at at a fourth round pick, I think, sort of poses some pretty difficult questions. Like, I, I think it's really important for Mott personally that he's going to get a chance to go play in New York, play on a big stage, play in playoff games here, because if teams weren't offering more than a fourth. It's hard to see him netting, you know, that good Brandon Tanev money mm-hmm. in unrestricted free agency, right? If the Canucks were reluctant to do the sort of deal that got them into the same neighborhood as Mott's camp, and if teams around the league weren't willing to part with more than a fourth-round pick, I mean, that poses some difficult questions about where Mott's valuation is on the eve of a really important contract for him and his family. Well, you're, and so you're right it's about that. crucial yeah. that he's getting this chance. Well, yeah, I mean, and... I wouldn't be surprised that the Canucks, the number they may have had for Mott, was something that he probably wouldn't have would would not have expected uh, accepted. Like I think if yeah. they made an offer, it was still with a one in front of it, like one point whatever, and it was under two million. And I can see Mott not wanting to take that, especially when you look at Dickinson making two point six five, and you know the comparable right there in house that he's going to point to whether it's fair or not, right? And. As much as Vancouver, I think, is interested in keeping some guys on this team, I think it's at cut-rate prices. So as much as there was talk about a trade, an extension for Tyler Mott, I wouldn't be surprised that whatever offer was made was relatively short-term. A number was probably not something that excited Mott in his camp. 
Well, and Sat, you've said that in trade talks, they've really held firm on the value, right? They've set their value and they've said, okay, that it, that's it. If you meet it, we're willing to consider it, but we're not going to budge off that number. And I wonder if there was a similar dynamic there with the Mott contract extensions, right? Where it's like, hey, we really like you. Great player. We're just absolutely not going above this number. And, you know, as you said, how do you gauge the value of a player? You make calls around the league. And if they weren't getting the trade interest in Tyler Mott, that's a good signal that, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be willing to bend too much on this contract number. Because even if you sign a player to a four or three or four year deal, you know, you still want them to be movable if you cut down the road, right? So if you're getting the sense from the league that, ah, you know what, we like Tyler Mott but we're really not ready to break, uh, willing to break the bank for him. That's a pretty good signal to you that, yeah, you're right to be holding firm in contract talks with that player. Well, is that a sign that they end up holding firm, let's say, on any talks with JT Miller as well? Right? That's the big. That's a big Listen, question to me. Small player, bigger player, you know, a lot different as far as valuations and importance to the team. And one player I could see you want to stretch a bit more for, as opposed to a guy that's a you know bottom six player for you. Plus, you can always circle back to Mod in the offseason and kind of see where that's at if you want to bring him back. But Drance, I do wonder too. Like, if we just kind of take some of the lessons we've learned as far as what this management team has done, if they hold firm on a price, even in JT Miller conversations, and this has been my my take on this for a few weeks here now that. Even if the Canucks talk contract with JT Miller, it's not that here's the Brinks truck, here's eight times eight, eight or nine times eight or whatever, and let's get this done. I think it's very much with we have a certain number in mind that's workable, and beyond that, we're not going to do it. Yeah, and that's important, right? You draw a line in the sand, you better enforce it. You better be willing to enforce it. Um, you look at what the Rangers paid across the board, right? They gave up a fourth for Vetrano. Um, we're waiting on the price for Cop, but speculation is that it's not um, one of the big three, certainly. Uh, my colleague at the Athletic, Arthur Staple, reporting that it's not Nils Lundqvist. So, I mean, this was a team that was clearly bargain shopping to some extent, right? I mean, go down, go down the list of their work, and you'll see a bunch of, you know, mid-range trades. Like, they were not hungry to bolster this roster. Uh, fourth Vermont. Um, you know, you look through and see a bunch of value deals. That's what Drury was clearly doing to bolster the depth on his roster. Um, clearly not a fit there. And if you're Vancouver, if you're Vancouver, again, no pressure on you to divest yourself of a forward you feel to be the best on your team. There's no, there was no timeline, no, no cause to jump at a deal. And, and the Canucks did jump at a deal on the one front that mattered, right? Which was the Mott front, um, there, they were probably willing to compromise at the deadline, but they weren't on the big ticket items where they had time. That was the right call. I know it's not the fireworks that some were hoping for. It's not the fireworks that at various points over the past two months, I'll say even I was expecting. But I think when you look at the body of work here and you see them take you know, a player in Travis Hamanick that I would sort of see as a, a bit of a money sinkhole, uh, probably at best a redundant piece on this team considering Shannon Poolman. Uh, when you're able to get out of that, turn that pick around and, and get a young player for that, a 25-year-old under team control, a player that I have some time for, although I'm not sure I see him as a future top four guy. That's the gamble the Canucks are, are placing there. And then you monetize Mott. You can't move Halak, unfortunately, but you try. You know, you sort of come out of it with a passing grade. Is it the perfect deadline? Is it this, you know, emphatic exclamation point statement for this new management group? No, but I think they got what they wanted to get done or what they had to get done. Yeah, that's the way to say it. They got what they had to get done done and they got an additional they got out of an additional middle class contract that I would never have believed they could have moved ahead of the deadline. 
Uh, I want to talk, keep talking about JT Miller, but just uh, Kevin Weeks of ESPN here with uh, an interesting update that I wanted to share that the New York Islanders have signed Zach Parise and Cal Clutterbuck to extensions, which is just about the most Lou Lamorello news drop uh, <laughs> 45 we, minutes after we, the NHL trade deadline pass that you could possibly imagine. So we, we should be talking more about that team. Yeah. I almost wish I almost wish that team played in Vancouver because I would have been crushing them for the last three years, even as they made it to the Eastern <laughs> Conference final for two consecutive years, I would have been wrong and now i would have been sitting here like let's yeah. go just just let's an go. incredible update there on the uh, on Lou Lamorello and the new york islanders okay but on jt miller because we've been on the jt miller mm. trade discourse roller coaster right where it really heated up and you know is are the new york rangers going to give Braden schneider is alexi lafreniere on the table and all this and then it really cooled down no when he goes on that kind of heater can we keep him can we keep him all of that obviously doesn't get moved stays with the canucks through the trade deadline as we all expected and a lot of the things that we've heard about how the Canucks see JT Miller, you could apply to Tyler Mott, right? That they really like the fit. They really like the player. They're they're at least open to signing an extension and keeping him around rather than trading him. And obviously, JT Miller, very different echelon of player than Tyler Mott is. But it does strike me that we heard all of those things about Tyler Mott, and then they ended up trading him for what they could get at the deadline. And to your point, that just because they're willing to make an offer to JT Miller doesn't mean it's going to be the type of offer that forces JT Miller's hand. And he looks at it and says, oh, well, I can't pass that up. I have to sign this deal. And I still think you look at looking at that Tomas Hurdle deal in San Jose, uh, my bet right now would be that JT Miller has priced himself out of the Canucks plans and that we start to hear the JT Miller trade chatter pick up going into the offseason. Because, oh, Drance, you made the point of what a vital contract this is for Tyler Mott. Like, JT Miller has a chance with this season to cash in and is a, you know, reasonable, somewhat team-friendly deal from the Canucks going to get it done? I'm not sure. You never know, but I, I remain. Yeah. Uh, I, it remains to convince me that that's the case. Well, and I'm going to write this this week. I'm going to write this this week, so I'm going to step on my own content because <laughs> the Canucks are going to visit Dallas yeah. in a week's time, and Dallas is not very good, right? Like they are your classic fringe playoff team, and I just want to go over all of the things that are working in the Dallas Stars' favor. They have Jake Ottinger on an entry level deal, and he's emerged as like a bona fide NHL starter, like actually a really good mm -hmm. starter. Okay, you've got Klingberg and Esselindel. Those are two top pair quality defensemen making less than $5 million. Think about how amazing that is. Incredible. Right. Throw into the mix that they have one of the best young defenders in hockey in Miro Haskinen. So they've got all of that working in their favor on the back end. Up front, up front you've got a 30-goal scorer on an entry-level contract in Robertson. Like, best-case scenario, hard to do better than that. And they also have... A player named Rope Hintz, who at 24 emerged as a top-line caliber centerman, 3.15 this year and next. <laughs> Add to the mix Radic Faxa, right? Add to the mix Denis Gurionov, all of this good young talent that they have on their lineup. That's a lot of things that have gone Dallas's way. That's a lot of talent accumulated efficiently, and they're not good. And you know why they're not good? Because they don't have enough secondary scoring, in large part because they pay... Two guys in their 30s, age 30 and 32, who are declining significantly a total of, I think it's $18.5 million in, mm -hmm. in Ben and Sagan. Like, if you sign JT Miller and add him long-term, right, to a, to a number that starts with 8.5 or 9, and add him to a group that already has Oliver ekman Larson signed through, you know, most of Hughes and Pedersen's 20s, right, your ceiling is the Dallas Stars, and I want better than that for this organization personally. 
my analysis is going to continue to reflect it. But but that for me is like the the test case. Like so much has to go right, and if you're if you're committing that much money inefficiently, you know, it gets really tough to build a really good team. Yeah, and the question is, what's that internal number they may have? For, for JT Miller. Is it eight? Is it slightly below that? What What is that number? And the only way I can see JT accepting a bit less, and by a bit less, I'm not talking about, you know, a team-friendly no. six times six, right? We're no. talking about total money, like in the $50 million range as opposed to in the $60 million plus range. The only way I can see him doing so is you look at, you have one year remaining on your contract. And you know that if you don't accept this deal, you might get traded. And if you get traded to a team, and I know you brought this point up too, Drance, that if you go somewhere else, it doesn't play a premium role, 20 minutes a game in every situation, doesn't put up, say, over a point per game, is he going to be able to demand the same contract as a UFA? So the biggest question here is, who's going to blink? Could JT blink even at a contract? that's It's going to be a lot. It could be $8 million per season, but it may not be seven or eight years. Does he take the risk for an extra $15, 20000000 million potentially? Well, and normally pending UFAs have a lot of incentive to go right to when they're going to yeah. be a UFA. JT Miller could be an exception because he's having such an incredible career year. There's going to be a lot of reason for him to take an extension this summer if he can. And it is an interesting wrinkle uh, to the dynamic. Sat, thanks for sitting in with us for the last hour, buddy. We really appreciate it. Of course, you can hear more from Sat with Dan Riccio on Canucks Central at 4 today. Expect to hear an interview with Canucks GM Patrick Alvin. Patrick Alvin will speak to the media coming up in just over half an hour at 1. 30 live from Rogers Arena. You'll hear that here live. The People Show with Bick and Randeep is up next as trade deadline coverage continues here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Oh, uh.